Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 297, Give Me Liberty, or Give Me Profit, recorded August 26th, no, August 6th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks, where you want it, when you want it. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie Jr. Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Greetings, everyone. Three more episodes to 300. You know, the the reason that's exciting to me is because the two key on my keyboard doesn't work on, on the 10 keypad. So for 90, low these 97 episodes now, I've been hitting two, oh, it doesn't work. And then I go up and hit two up uh, by the W and then nine, five, nine, six, whatever. So uh, that will be over except, you know, once every 10 episodes. So I'll feel better about that. Woohoo! <laughs> it's so the like, oddest what, thing. Nine, I spilled... Yeah. I spilled water on my keyboard, and the only damage was the two key stopped working. Uh, well, this day was prophesized. <laughs> and that happened like when we were in the nine hundred, uh, in the one hundreds, like one ninety five or whatever. So, literally a hundred weeks now, I've been living <laughs> with a broken keyboard. But you know, I, I can live with that. It's I'm such a tightwad. I can't even make myself. Spend. Oh, you're not a tight wide anymore. You're just holding on to the dream. <laughs> I'm not. Huh? Send us money, listeners. Send us money. I'm a fat cat liberal now, am I, Seth? <laughs> I mean, we could go back to the previous shows where you've butchered tight wideness and all of your open source credo. So, well, you know, you know, that's. I'm still a tight wide for myself. I'm happy to spend your money. Uh, I just don't want to spend my own. Okay. I do want to say a thank you. And if I were, if I were any prepared at all to do the show, I'd actually have the name, but, uh, a, a listener recently in the last few weeks, uh, began, uh, donating a, a fairly significant regular amount. I'm not going to do any details. In fact, if you go to the page, you can see it for yourself, but it was really, it was, you know, I always say pay for what you like. And, and this listener illustrated that he likes what we do. And, and, uh, I appreciate that very much. Um, it's, it's nice, you know, in this time of, of everybody wants everything for free. It's nice when somebody, you know, kicks a few bucks here and there. And, and anytime I see those Patreon pledges come in, it's not just the money. I mean, money is nice, but it's the, uh, it's the stand of solidarity that I appreciate more than anything else. So thank you for that. We gratefully accept the currency of Attaboy. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And, and Bitcoin's fine too. Um, uh, not not taking Bitcoin Cash just yet. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. My the thing I have just a, a Bitcoin service up on the website that immediately converts it to cash and sends it to me via PayPal. I don't even know if they do Bitcoin Cash or not. But if you want to throw money at me, my uh, Bitcoin wallet is there on the uh, on the website. Click the tip jar. You know, I was um, when I used to listen to this one Bitcoin podcast before they jacked their feet up. It was there was this website this plugin you could do for websites and it was this service that you could pay if they accepted an altcoin this service would take whatever altcoin you had and convert it to that so it's like you know if the 
cost was half an ether then and all you have was litecoin you know it would tell you you need i don't i don't even know the exchange rate you need 7.38 litecoin for this transaction and so you would pay this service in litecoin and the person would get their thing in ether and i wish i could remember the name of it um i can't so taking a small percentage along the way i'm sure i'm sure you know yeah but it's not it wasn't a lot and um shape shapeshift dot io if i recall the website he's project i know that one well all right i just a. I was listening to a real report podcast this weekend and i've been way behind my work has has been such that i haven't been able to listen to podcasts uh much lately so this one may be weeks old but he was commenting on somebody who uh was docked two weeks pay for some it was some foreign country thing and that two weeks pay was uh um eighty five hundred dollars so seventeen thousand dollars a month and leo said well it's not a high paying job and i thought that just shows how out of touch with reality leo is most of the world would be crazy insanely happy to make two hundred and four thousand dollars a year but leo in in his southern uh, northern california you know distortion reality distortion field doesn't think two hundred thousand dollars is a high paying job wow i always i always wondered how he i mean i what i haven't watched him for a few months but i did watch him when they were going through some recent studio move and they went from this small little cute studio in petaluma to this mega industrial park office thing with I'm I'm thinking, who's funding this? This is like a couple of million bucks to build this thing. I have no idea like, how he's pulling it off. And he even he didn't even he doesn't even own the building. He leases it. So yeah. that was I was like, what? You're gonna spend all that money on something you don't? Oh man, that's just, I couldn't believe it. So well, he charges the highest uh, um, cost per thousand uh, rate of any advertiser ever, and he gets advertisers. So. Clearly, he produces content that people want to pay for. You you know, it's really amazing to me. I was just thinking about this today. It just seems to me, I mean, I don't know, I'm interested in your take on this, that the people maybe 10 years ago who used to be personal computer nerds, you know, us geeks, and we used to argue about what operating system was the best and, and all that sort of stuff. Like we all went away or something because nobody cares about personal computers anymore. And I just put Leo Laporte in the category of the PC show podcasts of yesteryear. And I don't know if there's anything that's keeping up to date with what people really are into. Well, I mean, that's the question is what, what is it that people are really into? It's not PCs anymore. Even, even the diehards now, um, you, have to, you have to make a special effort and spend more money and go out of your way to build your own rig anymore it used to be the best the way to get the best rig and the way then to to do it for the least money was to do it yourself so the tightwad ethos the maker ethos was let's learn about this sort of stuff and let's make sure that our buses are compatible and get the right ram that goes in the right hard drive and, and it became a thing but now it is you can buy a pc at you know best buy or comp usa they're never around anymore at walmart for less than you can buy the components to build one uh, as good as that PCs have just become disposable things anymore, and not only commodities. That, but, yeah, but not only that, people aren't even using PCs as much as they used to. It's the tablet and the 
and the, even the mobile devices. So I, I, I think the market ran away from the enthusiasts rather than the other way around. And now there are people looking into mini PCs and and 3D maker uh, 3D printers and that sort of stuff. But really, I think there's a whole bunch of people out there who are just looking for a niche to arise that just hasn't come up yet. Yeah, I, I just remember the day when you used to go to those computer fairs where you know it was kind of like a somebody rented an old expo building somewhere and sold um, you know vendor space, and you'd go there and all of these kind of small companies that were one step up from a you know home-based business would be there selling motherboards they yeah. bought in from taiwan and do you remember those days they were kind of fun yeah they never knew what you discovered you know? it was third saturday in dallas they met under an overpass in downtown dallas and it was just an empty field nobody nobody even owned it or i guess it was publicly owned but it was just a a couple of acres of of dirt and people would pull their cars up and set up tents and stuff and it started at like one in the morning if you waited till like nine, like a normal person, all the good deals would be gone. And so over time, it just, that time, it, used to, it officially started at 9 a.m., but over time, it gradually worked its way back to where if you wanted the good stuff, you had to get there at midnight or before. And I, I, I wrote, walked that row a few times and, and, you know, bought, of course, there was this whole row of porn over there uh, that, that's always been available, but the, the motherboards and the, and the games for cheap and all that sort of stuff. Where are those people now? Where is that market now? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Well, uh, Amazon, eBay. Yeah. Now, I mean, you know, you think about it in the olden days, pre any of us, you couldn't just go out and buy a car and drive it somewhere. One, there were no roads. And two, you either had to be a mechanic or you had to have a mechanic ride with you because your car would break down every five or 10 minutes or whatever. Um, but now, you don't have to, the only thing you have, you don't even really have to know what a car looks like to be able to get in the one and drive it. And used to PCs, you know, even as late as the early 2000s were a, you know, a geek realm, you had to be interested. You had to be a hobbyist, a tinker, you know, entrepreneur type person. And now, you know, PCs are so cheap. I can't spend three hours working on a PC to save the OS because, you know, whatever, because you can go out and I'll buy a brand new computer for three hours of what it would cost me to work on it, you know, with that level of skill. So it's become, it's, it's a commodity. They're, they're almost irrelevant these days. They're so widely available and so cheap. And, and everything around it is starting to become uh, – well, okay, irrelevance is a good word. I'm going to be cautious about saying that Leo Laporte is irrelevant. But at the same time, I just don't have the draw to go and listen to his podcast and watch his channels and all of that. It's like I, I don't even have with, – with things like Cody Boxes, I did install the – what was it, the Twit TV app on mm-hmm. there so I could watch his stuff on the Cody box, but I don't use it. I end up spending all my time watching YouTube. It's like if you want to really broadcast to the world now, you go on YouTube, become a YouTube star, and we don't all try to have to jump through a million technical hooks, uh, hoops to, to do it. It's become so easy now. So I don't really know how relevant he is anymore, hence investing a million bucks or whatever in a big studio and all that stuff seems a little naive to me. But Well, 
I don't know. He has a whole production company. He has really a podcasting network. What a dozen shows or more, more covering. Yeah, a lot more. You know, there's the Security Now, Steve Gibson, freaking genius. Um, you know, the regular Twit. You know, there there's what Apple Weekly, Android Weekly, crap will never use Weekly, Windows Weekly. You know, bottom scraping Tech Barrel Weekly, whatever. He'll he'll get a show out on it. So you know, yes, maybe. The original, you know, what Leo Laporte became famous for has kind of that wave has crested and fallen, but he had the foresight to while that wave was up, he jumped to the one behind it that was only just this little swell. And now he's ridden that wave. And so he seems to have the savvy to, you know, not be caught um, in what got him there. You know, he's like, I don't care who brought me. I care who's about to show up to the dance so I can stay. And, you know, in, in a way that's something that a lot of the, the diehard enthusiast of whatever genre lack, they're like, you know, I love my Amiga and it will be Amiga forever. And, you know, great, but you know, you're now isolated to some random corner of the interwebs. Yeah, I, I'll just say I would love to be as irrelevant as Leo Laporte is today. <laughs> yeah, and then I just I was talking about PCs, not him. Yeah. So, and irrelevant was probably a strong word, but I words are failing me now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, that was out. an interesting discussion. I didn't I didn't mean to go down that road, but uh, uh, it is it does it is indicative of a changing thing. You know, the, the like the the top twenty or so podcasts in the world right now. Uh, are not technical. Uh, some of them are, but they're not. In, in in the early days, they were all technical. But now it's things like This American Life and uh, Mike Rose, uh, The Way I Heard It, and um, I, I just looked at this list just recently, the top 20, but of the top 20, maybe two were technical. And not not really technical, not computer, not speeds and feeds technical, but, uh, you know. Like uh, we're technical. Yeah, technical <laughs> as in the, the zeitgeist of the geek. Uh, but podcasting is not the geek realm anymore. It isn't. Uh, and, you know, my hope in 2008 or whatever was to get in on a nascent market and ride that tide up. What happened was, you know, I, I got drowned and the tide has risen and I'm I'm irrelevant. Uh, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, having a pity party or anything. Don't Don't misunderstand me. I just understand now that this kind of show that we do here is never going to have an audience of you know more than a few thousand people. I don't know why, honestly. I don't know what the other people have that we don't, but whatever it is, we don't have it. If we had it, we would have risen by now. But we Thank have you. the best few thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> we just One of us needs to become famous at something, and then all of a sudden people will right. listen to our podcast, you yeah. know? So, you know, we... So, so send us your nominations, you know, um, feedback. What is our address general address geekrant at elementop.com yeah. elementop.com and nominate who you want to have a sex tape <laughs> uh moving right along yeah you know or how much money will you pay us to not make a yeah, sex tape go. maybe that'll do better if so. you don't donate millions of dollars i will make a tape of that uh funny uh just today i was replacing a, a pc power supply something i used to do literally dozens of times a week um the the main family room pc it's a shame to even call it that i think i bought that in like 2004 
it's that old um and it's still kicking along it's got it's got windows vista on it um <laughs> it's still still kicking along but it's been through like three hard drives and this is the second power supply um but i can't i can't justify for you know 15 dollars for a new power supply or 400 dollars for a middling computer 900 to to 1100 for a good one for something that we just watch youtube videos on and type word documents on i just can't justify that expense so today i you know i I bought the replacement power supply oh 14 months ago or so and today i finally got around to putting it in and it took me 10 minutes and i thought you know 10 minutes worth of work but 14 months to get around to do that uh (laughs) that work but my skills have atrophied uh it took me half yeah i said 10 minutes it was really about half an hour from start to finish to put that thing in it really should have been about four minutes um but i i literally was looking at this molex connector going does that go pin side up or which the clip goes on what i really should have looked at that before i took it off i don't remember how and i thought you know this that's just not my life anymore yeah i'm not the tightwad deck anymore i don't sit around soldering components anymore uh so maybe the reason uh that i'm no longer listening to leo and and his stuff is that i'm not in that world anymore anyway there was a point somewhere but i've lost it so seth atomic bond i know nothing about this i didn't even know atomic bond was a thing so you're gonna have to fill me in okay i'm surprised you haven't seen previews either at other movies you've seen or on netflix or whatever um charlize theron is a secret agent this is set at the end of the cold war late you know right right at the time the berlin wall fell so i believe that was 89 ish whenever that anyway yeah. i was a kid i didn't care um so she's like this secret agent you know trying to get this list to uh, whatever and there were a couple of fight scenes that were, to me, of the quality of the third Jason Bourne movie in the bathroom. That's how good the fight scenes were. But there wasn't enough of a movie around those fight scenes. So they're like, eh, show Charlie Theron's boobs. And, you know, oh, okay, show, their, show her boobs again. And, oh, show Herb's boobs with somebody else's boobs. And, you know, so it, it just it wasn't a good movie. There were some, like I say, some of the fight scenes were incredible. Um, the plot, they're just, it just seems like they did not tell a good movie. Now, it's based on some graphic novels I had never heard of, which I'm not really into graphic novels or comics much anymore. Um, so I don't know if the source material was weak or, pro- or if people who weren't fans tried to make a movie out of the source material. It just, it didn't come, I wasn't like, you know, plot twist oh okay i don't care i'm not emotionally involved in the so it just it didn't do it for me but anyway atomic blonde uh more tna than i was expecting um and but you know there's some action there's some death violence gore but you know that's that part moves the story along the the tna there's like one part where you could say okay in this aspect i can see it but otherwise it was just Throw it in there to cover up a weak story. So wait for DVD release. I guess, yeah. Um, you know, maybe a Netflix it and uh, you know Netflix and forget. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay money to see it. Um, you know, I'm kind of bummed I did, but I saw it at a cheap theater, so it didn't cost me a lot. It's got 75 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is actually a pretty high score. 63 percent on Metacritic. Um. So it's it's a middling movie, at best, uh, e- even by the critics. Uh, I, I seriously, I didn't. I'm looking at it up now. 
I haven't seen a commercial for this movie. It, now, I don't watch a lot of real television, so that might be why. I haven't seen previews or posters anywhere. I, I didn't, I've never seen the comic book. This is like, uh, I've been dropped from another planet. I, I do know who Charlie Theron is, but so far that's the only name you've mentioned that I know anything about. The trailers look like a cross between James Bond and Sin City. And unfortunately, like happens so often today, they, you know, the trailers just did a very poor job of capturing the zeitgeist of the movie. And, um, you know, there were some really good scenes that weren't in the trailers, but it just, it wasn't a good movie. Some of it, some parts of it were great, but as a movie, it flopped. Yeah. To me. You know, you mentioned your, your thing there, uh, your mention of nudity is my, my biggest complaint. I'm not, I'm an adult, you know, I don't mind human bodies, male or female being naked on screen. But if it's just there to cover up a weakness, you know, that's a problem. And, and I do see that a lot. It's like, you know, and blood is the same way. You know, we, we, we have a weak plot. We have a weak, weak main character. We can't tell a story. So let's show guts. Um, yep. and, or let's show boobs. And so when I use the, and, and, or sometimes language the same way, it's like, we, we can't write. So let's just throw the F bomb out there. We don't know. There's not, there surely is a good adjective here. But I can't think of it, and I'm too lazy, so I'm just going to say effing. That's not an, even an adjective, right? But so when I see when I talk about gratuitous violence or gratuitous nudity or gratuitous language, it's not just because it offends my right wing cons, uh, conservative Christian sensibilities. It is, it offends my sensibilities as a viewer of quality media. Uh, and you you really put it very well there. It doesn't advance the story; it just covers up a weakness. I like that. Yeah. I'll use that. Yeah, like I say, there was one part where I say, okay, that fits in the story. You know, you could have done it without, but I don't have a problem with it there. And, of course, you know, Charlize is still hot, however old she is. She's like, they keep her in Tupperware or something between movies because (laughs) she doesn't seem to age. Uh, So she's hot, and, yeah, I got to see her boobs. But, you know, as far as a movie, it could have been awesome in a great movie. So, And she can act. I mean, you know, maybe this was a role that was beneath her, you know. You know, I mean, I wouldn't say anything bad about her acting. It just, the movie didn't do it for me. So, I don't know. My wife and I watched uh, on Netflix or a Netflix DVD, actually, uh, the uh, second Jason, uh, Jack Bourne, uh, Jack Reacher, uh, Jason Bourne, Jack Bourne, Jack Reacher. It's all the same character. (laughs) The second Jack Reacher uh, movie, uh, Never Going Back, I think it was. My wife has a thing for um tom cruise so she will watch him read the phone book um and so i that movie was for her but right. you know i like watching stuff blow up so there was some for me and i felt the whole time all the way through from beginning to middle to end the whole time i was like i don't regret watching this that's like the best i could say about it i don't regret watching Ooh. it you know it wasn't great it was predictable you know not at any point was there oh i didn't see that coming no never happened um the the actresses uh the kobe smolders i think it is she's uh 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 in the mc universe she's uh oh the agent uh, her name yeah uh she's um fury's right hand woman uh she was on how i met your mother um and so she's a well-known actress, you know, uh, 10 years or so was the how i met your mother and then she's been in several movies uh, and yet on the cover of the film, all you get is uh, a three-quarter profile and uh, a swish of her long hair flying. 
I didn't even know the actress was in the movie. From looking at the movie poster, it's Tom Cruise's face, an explosion in the background, and her hair. And talk about a wasted uh, character. Uh, it just goes to show, I guess, the power of Tom Cruise. But anyway, all the way through the movie, you know, it was fine. When it was over, it was fine. It's like on a scale of one to ten, it's a, it's a six. It's fine. I don't regret having watched it. Don't recommend it. Honestly, can't remember it. I just watched it last night. Can't tell you what happened in it. I th- I kind of, if I remember correctly, I enjoyed that one more than I did the first one. And I, apparently, there's a whole series of books. I think the books would be pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the I, books I've heard are excellent. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'm reading my uh, zombie apocalypse series, and I've got. Let me see. I'm only on book nine, so I think I got another year left on my one book a month plan <laughs> before I catch up with them. So. All right, so there's my media for the night. And Miles, you you have somewhere between the two. You have explosions and computers. Oh, yeah. Not anything entertaining. I made the mistake of going on Craigslist to find a electrical contractor to bring out to my house to install. I I've been I I've been uh, I had this stupid idea in my head that I wanted to replace the receptacles in a number of outlets in my house with those that have those USB chargers in them. Oh, yeah. Then, You've seen those. I've got a couple like of those. Got a couple of those. Well, I I I don't like dealing with mains voltage, so rather than me try and do it and screw something up, I decided to find somebody who could do it. And all of my maintenance guys that we use for our rental properties, you know, they're all busy. It's summer and it's too hot, and they don't want to work. So whatever. So I went to Craigslist to find some journeyman electrical guy to come out to the house, and he did, and he installed them. And, of course, he had to turn all of the power switches off on the circuit board before he did anything, which, of course, I wanted him to do that. And uh, I went out with him to show him the board, and I said, listen, whatever you do, don't touch that circuit. That's the circuit to my office with all my computers and servers in it. And, you know, they're on UPSs and everything, but still, I don't need to be dealing with rebooting everything because you just did this thing and so he goes yep okay not a problem sure no problem so i go back to my office to work while he's doing all of this thing and next thing you know the whole room's black and everything's off and i'm like oh no what and so i go out there like what did you do well i didn't turn the one you pointed at and he's pointing at the wrong one like you idiot Anyway, I'm thinking, okay, fine. Look, I'll recover. I'll turn everything back on, right? Well, doesn't everything doesn't come back on when you do those abrupt power disconnects, particularly to the old vintage computers I've got, which have you know got old power supplies, capacitors, or whatever. So now I'm going to spend the next two weeks cleaning up one by one every machine that just blew up as a result of this guy. So public service announcement don't go to craigslist and find a journeyman electrician if you value anything in your house or maybe an even simpler pro tip put a piece of tape over the one that he shouldn't move <laughs> oh yeah oh man <laughs> anyway that was it yeah i have uh two of those uh outlets that i picked up on a site called amazonreviewtrader.com it's no longer a thing uh, but you could get free or discounted stuff by leaving an honest Amazon review, um, and which I did. And these were great, um, but they're very difficult to install because they're so thick. They fill mm. the entire electrical box. And uh, in both cases, I was, I mean, I've done lots of, you know, uh, electrical work complete with, I mean, I've wired entire buildings uh, from from the ground up. 
Um, but this putting these two things in was was one of the hardest things I've ever done because they they just I, I ended up having to structurally alter the box that they were in because they were so thick. So just consider that in the future. Did your electrician have that issue? Yeah, but yeah. we did get it in. I mean, he was yeah. he wasn't really good on the smarts, but he was really good on the brute force side of things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they also uh, they make these um, things that fit between your plug and the outlet that it's about the size of a credit card. And then it, once you get outside the plug, it fans up where you can um, stick a USB cable in it for people who, who say, I would like to be able to charge at the wall, you know, without having a bunch of power strips uh, everywhere. You can just, like I say, it's about the thickness of a credit card at the plug. And so you plug, the plug holds it against the wall and then it, um, it uses the, teeth or the for lack of a better word the teeth of the plugs to get its power to power the usb stuff so yeah so uh, i will do a, a plug for something i haven't used um but i've seen them and they look like the perfect solution uh but they're just a little too pricey for me right now they're called snap power you can uh, go to snappower.com um and it's a face point that fits over your existing outlet and there's two little metal contacts in the faceplate that um, that power either a USB charger or uh, a three LED set of nightlights. Huh. Um, and it's really the simplest. If you can, you don't have to replace any of your sockets, all your existing outlets. You don't have to do anything like that. Don't even have to turn the power off. You just unscrew the faceplate and screw the new faceplate on. Done. Um. And it really uh, looks like the way I would go if I weren't such a tightwad. But Seth says I'm not, so apparently I should just go ahead and load up on them. Um, but it's uh, I think they're about $10 a piece. I'm trying to find them now on our website. When they don't list the price on the website, that's a bad thing. Uh, but the last time I checked, I think it was a three-pack for $30, um, which is not terrible. It's just that's you know bad. a little more than I'm willing to pay. Hmm. Um, when you can get just a regular charger for two bucks holy schmoly because not uh, only do you once you do that you still got to have the cable and all that so you know. no 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 a three pack is apparently 54 dollars. oh okay so even more than i remembered a single is 20 two pack is you can buy 10 for 160 so there you go that's that's your best bet okay so and it that's not an unreasonable investment um we've all got 10 outlets in the living rooms and the bedrooms and the kitchens and at 16 dollars an outlet that's not a terrible idea, but then you still have to have a USB cable in every place unless you're going to carry one with you. So it's it's not the one-shot uh, fix-everything solution, but it would certainly be probably less expensive and less difficulty than you went through. I wish I'd told you about this a couple of weeks ago, Miles. Yeah. Oh, well, you live and learn. <laughs> uh, all right. There's a, there's a little bonus tip for today. So now we're going to move on to some listener feedback, which is also the topic of the show. Uh, this week it's uh from david and it's a very long email that we thought deserved an entire show so here we go uh david says sorry in advance for this long rambling post it was just something that uh, was keeping me up late one night and i need to get it down i've sent to you i've sent it to you after some editing but like i said it still rambles on a bit thankfully it's somewhat related to the net neutrality hubbub that's currently popular in the u.s right now but anyway i'm going to call this david's tirade it seems to me that everyone on the show is fairly conservative, maybe libertarian, 
and all of you have a fondness for open source. So I pose this question. Can libertarians or conservatives truly embrace open source as a value? On the surface, I suppose it makes sense. It's a free or cheap product featuring a pay-what-you-want model, so it's fiscally conservative. There also isn't any real centralized force behind it, at first glance anyway, so that fits with the small government mantra of conservatives and libertarians. But the entire open source philosophy is about community. You take and you give something in return. If you fork a project, you must be aided, you must abide by the rules of the license code you forked from. Now, this depends on the license, but the most common is the GNU public license, the GPL, which is very much all about community. So it doesn't mean that open source, so doesn't it mean that open source is more communistic or socialistic? Now, don't get me wrong. Communism and socialism by themselves are not inherently bad systems. I think everybody agrees on this. Every system of government or ruling, including capitalism, always breaks down because of human greed, which is the main reason why modern Americans shy away from the two types of government, and also the Cold War helped. But when conservatives and libertarians are far more capitalistic, which is all about living based upon the merits of your work, does this contradict the open source mindset? The users are able to leech off of the hard work of developers who don't get paid unless the rare person donates money. Bill Gates once wrote a letter about open source hobbyists and raised this exact question. Quote, if you're creating computer programs for free, how will you make money? Even today, a lot of open source developers struggle with this problem. Some projects like Ardor have the code available and you can build the program for free if you like. But if you want the executable binaries, you have to pay a small amount of money. Other projects like Elementary OS have a pay what you want model where they ask for a donation toward the project, but you can set it to zero. Of course, the most common way is through do donations or Patreon, but it can be difficult to get people to do one or the other. By the way, this is the perfect time to plug elementop.com slash Patreon. I don't expect all of these questions to be answered in a single show, but I do think it's interesting brain fodder. As someone who is starting to take privacy much more seriously due to some recent happenings, mostly with Microsoft, I sometimes feel like my governmental beliefs as a libertarian counteract my software beliefs. Hopefully this fuels at least one episode of interesting discussion from you three. Before I leave, I want to say that I went and bought a System76 laptop, the Gazelle, and I'm really enjoying it. I've actually found that it's about the same price as other laptops with similar specifications. So either price has gone down a lot in recent years or other manu manufacturers are getting more expensive. I'm not sure which. Either way, keep up the great show, David. So there you go. Can you be both a capitalist and an open source enthusiast? And I'll, I'll admit, you know, we've talked about this in roundabout ways for, you know, the last five years. There is uh, some tension there. Um, the, the guy, you know, one of my favorite mantras is, is programmers got to eat. And if you want their stuff for free, they're, they're going to either go do something else where they can make money and stop programming, or they're going to take a, a professional programming job and, and the, their, their code won't be available anymore. I've seen lots of open source projects, things I really loved go away because the developer couldn't, couldn't make a living and couldn't devote the time that he needed to, to the free thing. So I get that the, the capitalistic mindset, you can't live on love. You got to have actual cold, hard cash to feed a family and, and uh, take care of yourself. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that commercial software anywhere in the world, I don't think the commercial offering is, is always the best offering. Many times the, the open source offering is the better one because that's when you get the person's passion. They go to a dead end job they hate, they come home and do what they love and you get the product of what they love. So I like that about open source. But David asks an interesting question. If we could fast forward 25 years, 
can both coexist? Guys, what do you yeah. think? Go ahead, Miles. You go first. Um, all right. So I, I, I have a lot of experience in this uh, because I've had to live through uh, this exact problem. So the answer is yes, absolutely they can, and they can live together very comfortably, but not necessarily for all the reasons that most people think. Um, so I'll, I'll give some context behind that. I, uh, a while back, and this is going back to about uh, 2003, uh, I was finishing a long-standing, I wouldn't call it a career, but a long-standing um, level of being a senior developer in a, in a very proprietary software programming language from France called Fourth Dimension. And I had developed in this thing for nearly 20 years. It was a Macintosh database product that came out in the mid-80s, and I'm showing my age here, but I was one of the uh, early adopters and I became one of the experts in it. And uh, I rode that train for a long time, but all through it, the company was uh, very... Uh, uh, all about money. I mean, uh, and that's okay. I, you know, everybody in that uh, back in those days was selling their time for a premium. So, you know, well, there was plenty of money sloshing around to write, you know, database applications and so on for customers. Um, the problem was I didn't want to write one-to-one applications for customers. I wanted to write an application and sell it openly. And back in the 90s and the early 2000s, you could do that. You could put an application out on the internet. People could download it and pay, you know, with their credit card and get a license and use it. And the problem with that particular product was that it had a server component when you had multiple users running it. And the server component you had to buy from uh, 4D, the company that sold it. Very, very expensive. It meant that their costs, when I say very expensive, I'm talking thousands of dollars. So their costs had to be incorporated into my costs, passed on to the customer. Therefore, my software had to be thousands and thousands plus thousands and thousands. And in the end, I was very expensive. But I lived in that world because at the time I had a particular offering that nobody else had. So I was happy enough to do it. Well, I realized as time went on, this company was not really investing its profits back into its product in a way that was going to help me. They were going off on other tangents that didn't have any relevance to what I was doing. So I knew that my days in this world had to come to an end. And around about the early 2000s, I looked for ways to get out of this business. And the one thing I was looking for was to how do I get out of this business and not be in a situation where I'm tethered to another manufacturer and spending an enormous amount of money uh, for their product. And at this point in time, the biggest issue was the database. Now, if you go back in time here, I'm a software developers probably know all this stuff anyway. Um, this was when MySQL came out. This is when PostgreSQL came out. And uh, there were a lot of products vying for the best database of choice. What I wanted was a product that I could bundle with my software, distribute it at a minimal cost to my end users to reduce my cost of the product down so the customers could buy more volume and that, you know, it would all work. I ended up uh, choosing a product back in its very early days called Firebird. And what Firebird was was an open source version of the old uh, product from a company called Borland back in the day called Interbase that actually bought it. 
And what had happened is that uh, these guys had kind of mismanaged Interbase and somebody at some point around about 1999, there was all this, you know, it was really cool to be an open source company back then. So they had decided that they weren't selling enough of this thing, so they would open source it. So they released the code out to the world and a whole bunch of people from all over the world picked it up, forked it into this thing called Firebird. And to this day, I love Firebird as a SQL database. It's awesome. And it's 100% free. So all of a sudden, I go from a company who's been spending thousands and thousands of dollars with this French mob to buy their software, their, their OEM license, to I don't have to pay anything. And all of a sudden, my prices dropped, my product quality went up. Uh, I could use other platforms. I could do things I couldn't have done before. And uh, in the end, I felt really good and I was making good money. And, I th- and then I f- was faced with the quandary. How is this ever going to continue? <laughs> How are these guys ever going to continue this project? Um, they had little, once a year, they all got together somewhere in Prague and had a little, you know, expo thing for themselves. And I realized it was a very small community. There were like 50 or 100 people in it. It was not big. How do I, how do I help this stay alive? So what I did was I, I went on their website and they had this thing where you could sign up as a, a founding partner. And you could give them a swag of money and they'd recognize you as being, you know, on their team. And I wasn't going to write their code. I hadn't got time for that. I wasn't going to write their documentation or translate it, something into English or whatever. But I was really leveraging their products so well that I ended up giving them $5,000. Because that was nothing compared to what I was paying this French company for their software. And I was still selling, you know, hundreds of licenses of this thing. And... It helped them move ahead. It helped them get other developers. And in doing that, I started realizing where all these developers who were working on the project were coming from. They were all from Eastern Bloc European countries, or they were from Brazil, or they were from China or Malaysia. And the one thing they had in common was they didn't need money like I needed money. And I'm not saying that that I need a lot of money. I'm just saying that in the United States, it's expensive to live. I mean, you know, it costs you a, a norm, probably a year's salary to pay a month's rent compared to those guys. And when they don't need an enormous amount of money, they still have a lot of time on their hands and a lot of interest in pursuing their technologies. And that's where the open source market is flourishing. So in summary, If you say, can free market and open source live together? Absolutely it can. Free market can help fund open source. And if open source is done in economic regions that don't require a lot of money, this can work. And and so, yeah. Wouldn't you you have to agree that this is the exception and not the rule? That this, this is a small case of everything going right and not the, the template for the way to make money and to make a living using open source. Um, you may be right. If that's the case, I got lucky on my first journey with this whole thing. Um, I mean, I use Apache, I use PHP, I use a lot of open source, uh, I use Linux, I use a lot of open source projects. Do I give back to them? Sometimes. Um, not anywhere near as much as I did with this project. But So a lot, of the, a lot of the things that you just mentioned there, Apache, my SQL, these sort of things – they exist because a large entity is scratching their own itch. 
Um, for example, uh, uh, Star Office, which is now uh, Open Office and has since forked to LibreOffice, that got its start of a German uh, software company uh, who was making a version of Microsoft Office or a competitor to Microsoft Office. Sun Microsystems was coming up on a system-wide uh, site license upgrade to Microsoft Office, and they found that it was cheaper to buy a software company than it was to purchase a single software. So they scratched their own itch. That's how that came to be. There, were, uh, you know, Apache uh, follows a similar story. It's it's huge because companies need it to be huge. Um, Linux is huge because companies need it to be huge. So if you can, you know, uh, hit your wagon to one of those infrastructure things, I think you're pretty safe. I think Linux is pretty safe for the for a while. Apache is pretty safe for a while. MySQL is pretty safe for a while. Although the NoSQL guys have been trying to. You know the the not no sequel not being a thing, but a group of people have been trying to tackle that for a while. MongoDB, for example, um, but those are again the the few monolithic examples uh, that I don't that I don't think represent the true state of modern affairs. Seth, what do you think? Okay, well, unfortunately, the true state of modern affairs is we have no way to know if uh, open source and capitalism can coexist because what runs rampant in America now has been so perverted by greed that there's really no capitalism left. You know, now it's a winner take all mentality and we're going to kill anybody who gets close to us. So in capitalism, open source works great because you want to make a living and you want to make a profit, but you realize you live in a community and your profits, you might get a bigger short-term profit by screwing all of the open source people you use their stuff for free, but you can have a long-term viable product if you take the time and invest in the open source projects as if you were buying your software from closed source groups, you know, in much the same way that you can slash and burn agriculture and farm for a few years, or you can learn to live with your environment and you can have, you could live in, you know, around for eternity other, or you can, you can destroy your land and, you know, go destroy other land to get fertilizer for your land to go good then go destroy other land to fix that land. Or, you know, you can crop rotate and don't try to grow a thousand acres of cotton every year for a hundred years running. So capitalism is fine and it allows open source to flourish, but it only works if the people in charge of the capitalism have morals. And that's something that unfortunately uh, seems to be lacking. And for proof, I just say, have you looked at the news? Um, and, you know, so I think it can. Unfortunately, I say, think it's impossible to test. So in inherent, in I want to take you uh, take what you said and, and and look at what David said. Inherent in your uh, description there is capitalism has been supplanted, and there isn't there's there's a dearth of true capitalism in the world today. It seems to be also inherent in David's um, uh, email that he equates uh, liberty with anarchy, um, and that if we accept any rules, we're we're um, somehow foregoing our uh, liberty. And and there are those Stolman would probably be, be uh, the head of the line to agree with that. That any um, 
acceptance of rules of someone else is inherently giving up freedom. Uh, but I think you have to recognize that in, in the real world, not in the theoretical world, there is neither utopia nor dystopia. There is, uh, there is the real world somewhere in between that capitalism will always devolve into greed at some point and liberty will always devolve into anarchy at some point. And so you have to have restrictions and rules on both of those things. So really maybe um, the modern existence of open source is that, that middle line walking between liberty uh, and between greed and anarchy. Well, anarchy is only without governance. That's all that it means. It just means that we don't have, you know, a, a state over us telling well, us what we can and cannot we'll say, do. Well, say, take governance and not think uh, um, uh, state of, of affairs, but, you know, in the any, any open source um, community, there must be governance. There must be. Otherwise, it devolves into anarchy. And that's why, like I said earlier, Star Office, Open Office, Libra Office, I didn't pick that accidentally. Those are cases of uh, disagreements in governance, anarchy uh, erupting, and then new governance being uh, developed. And that is that is the 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 history repeating itself the or who is it somebody said history doesn't repeat but it's your echoes the echoes of history that we see in open source uh, over and over is a group of people uh, at some point taking their dolly and going home because they can't agree with the governance i mean what what the whole what we were talking about earlier bitcoin bitcoin cash um segwit all that sort of stuff it's the disagreements are very rarely technical and are are governance related and so the the open source mindset, the freeness of things, the free as in and speech uh, mantra is has always been about being anti-governance. But you also can't get anything done without some form of governance. So aren't we both shooting ourselves in the foot either way? I mean, yeah, because... One of the reasons, well, the one reason that Linux doesn't dominate the end user experience is because everybody got mad and switched to, and now we're going to make a new distro based on the kernel. And then everybody there got mad and we're going to make a new distro and then we're going to make a new distro and we're going to make a new distro. So you have 758 separate distros trying to reinvent the wheel that if everybody would have stuck with the original one, you could have a polished, well-heeled um, operating system that the end user, non-technical person, you know, that, that that's why Apple re, um, you know, survived their near-death experience and you know and that's how microsoft was able to dominate the corporate environment they produce something on the computer that you didn't have to be a computer expert to use and linux hasn't got to that point because everybody is squabbling over these issues uh, rather than just picking one and running with it or even just picking two three four or five and running with it instead you know Instead of having 100 developers working on 10 projects, we have 100 developers working on 150 projects. And so they're not going anywhere like they should be. And you could argue that's pure open system, pure open source at its best, no rules. I'm going to take the code and I'm going to go home and yay, freedom. But 
I can't use it because I'm not a freaking expert and I don't want to spend, you know, six months learning to do something that you're going to be mad and go somewhere else. And the people who are left aren't going to know. So can pure open source exist in today's world? No, but could people put some boundaries on open source and make it viable even in today's headhunter winner take all I'm going to shoot anybody that gets close to me market yes it can so would you agree with me that in in 2017 um uh, America well we even say global the only way for a company to succeed is to be um headed by a charismatic douchebag um yeah i i know where you're going with that i mean i can see that but i don't absolutely believe that it's the case maybe big enterprises sure because they're very hard to to wrestle and maybe you need a wrestler for that i don't know i you know look i will look at it from a it, it it's hard to say it's hard to put open source free market libertarian in the same sentence because i don't think that it's necessarily um, describing everything that's going on here. I think it's fair to say open source and capitalism in the same sentence. I think that does work because the way I look at it as a capitalist, I see that when any enterprise is to be created, you have an idea or a mission for what the, the enterprise is going to be doing. You have those that can do it, they, the 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 geniuses, the technology people, or whatever, you'll have those that can fund it. They're financial people who can come in and they can provide the necessary capital in order for that enterprise to do its thing. Neither are evil, right? Let's, let's remember, you know, we think about the money people as being the, you know, the guy with the monocle, you know, <laughs> that is the one percenter that we all want to occupy against. No, no, that's not the case. I mean, they're the ones that bring the capital to the table in order for the visionaries and for those that can do things to be able to do what they do best. I mean, a very, very good inventor programmer is probably not motivated by money. I mean, sure, they like money. They want to drive the Ferrari. But really what they want to do is that is hack that thing, build that thing. And so if they're coming to it from an open source perspective that they want to give away their code to the rest of the world, Maybe that's okay, but if there's a money person who comes to the table and says, but I'm going to fund you so that you can devote all of your time to this thing, then that's a good thing too. If at the end of the day it produces something which the world can benefit from, everybody wins. And so is it free market? Is it open source? Who cares? <laughs> it's just a meeting of the minds of people with different um, contributions to be able to offer something to each other. And Maybe that maybe that is free market. I, I don't know. I like the the idea of bringing the right people together who can work together as a team, who can produce something that's really, really cool, and ideally that it can be done so that the customer does still have choice and the customer is not locked into one thing and that we don't um, <coughs> we don't distort capitalism into this controlling dictatorial thing that it seems to have become a la Microsoft. Just going to let it hang in the air there. See if anybody. <laughs> yeah, I, there has to be, there has to be corporate buy-in for open source to work. You know, you've got to have 
a vision, and if the vision is cast by the charismatic dictator, so be it. But I don't know if it has to be, but you you have to have this, you know, I might not agree with this choice, but I love this thing. And so I'm sticking with this thing, even though I don't like this choice. Now, you know, if the thing is the paycheck that this choice provides, okay, but so, I mean, almost the, the, the thought behind your question, yes, your question, I don't know. So, or I hope not. So, well, I, to, again, to go back to the, uh, the email that started it all, um, he, he says, uh, I'm looking for it anyway. Anyway, he goes on to say that, uh, that communism, uh, uh, socialism, capitalism, all the isms eventually break down, um, as as it scales we have yet to find any system of governance i'm, I'm going to stay away from the, the word government because people think world powers but um, i'm looking at governance here as as the way any group of people organizes itself um we haven't yet found one that scales you know to thousands to or millions of people um so the only way a truly open project can um can, per, persist is it for it to stay small and so miles your example with the uh the software the database system that you got it is a small cadre of people who are perfectly content to be a small cadre of people and you're perfectly content for them to use uh, f- uh, to produce the product as it is you don't need all the fancy marketing bells and whistles yeah uh, there are other products i'm sure that on the market that have a, a, a stronger feature set and a, a slicker packaging and better documentation uh and and better support you don't need that because you you just need the 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 hammer and they they make really nice hammers um but when you scale people aren't looking for just really nice hammers anymore they want a complete tool set they want documentation they want insert slot a into tab b scratch that reverse it insert tab a into slot b uh anyway the um and i think scaling is the issue uh, across all this discussion that we're having if you want to stay small you can be open but if you want to get big you have to be closed. What do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I'd agree. I, I would say, look, um, this does scale if the free market is allowed to be a free market because then the customer has choices and there's, look, there's opportunities for everybody here in, in this whole pipeline. Well, hold you- on, I want to I interrupt you here, okay? Mm-hmm. The customer has choices. Inherent in the open source world, there are no customers and there are very few choices. The, yeah, okay. Um, the user. The user, yeah, the consumer, the user. The, right, well, yeah. But still, but also, I mean, the one thing open source doesn't really provide is choices. It provides versions of exact same thing. But it's not really choices. Well, yeah, there, I mean, when, when I went through my experience, I had to review a number of different offerings, and, and so I did have choices, and I, and I literally reviewed against what was platform compatible, what performed better, what scaled better, and, and I made a choice based on those sorts of things. So I but guess to, as to a Seth's consumer, I had choice. About, you know, uh, forking the code, that when you look at the, the Linux distributions in the world today, there are, there are a lot of nameplates but i would argue there aren't a lot of choices you're you're picking you know vanilla with chocolate sprinkles or vanilla with strawberry sprinkles it's all vanilla it's all ice cream it's all the same thing nobody's selling custard nobody's selling pudding uh, nobody's offering 
uh, you know, donuts. It's all ice cream with different window dressing. Well, that's and, because Haiku OS doesn't have the financial resources to develop and GNU crap kernel, whatever that name is. Some, got sometime a, in 2030, maybe. Yeah, It's got another century of beta left at least before it gets to a testing phase. So, you know, open source and there's nobody to work on it because there's no demand for it because the the amalgamation of the systems into the hybrids um you know has resulted in something that is far surpassed what the totally free open source thing can be and i i, I don't i don't even know what we're talking about anymore no, I'm getting no. a headache. but no okay so there is a uh, there is a need uh, okay the different distros that are out there exist and succeed based on the amount of faith that their users have in them in their longevity so ubuntu has a lot of users because canonical as a larger enterprise has been able to create something in which users had faith that it was going to be around tomorrow um uh, red hat same thing and then the the versions that spin off like centos or scientific linux or whatever are all based on that faith model but eventually there's too much forking and there's too it gets confusing and you can't get grandma to use it because it just confuses them and at some point you mark you're right the open source world works really, really well as an OEM level supplier, but it requires somebody who wants to package something up for the masses to be able to turn it into something that's kind of people friendly. I mean, the the iPhone, the iOS operating system is based on um, no, not no. I'm sorry, the Mac OS X operating system is based on FreeBSD, but you couldn't get FreeBSD to run on Grandma's you know computer because it's just way too technical, right? They they provided a solution to make that work. Did they give back to the free BSD project? Oh, well, they probably did because they, it was in their interest to keep the project running. So they probably ended up funding half of it. Um, therefore, it does work. But it, it also it, – so it's fair at the at the raw material level. Open source gives a lot of options to a lot of technical companies who can adapt it and turn it into a product. The adaption and turning into a product is capitalism, free market, libertarian, etc. And as long as they don't abuse that right and try and dominate it and dictate everything to everybody else, the world will get along just famously and the open source people will be very happy, be able to do what they do and they can argue amongst themselves and, and that's fine. You know, they're all corralled. But they're not able to hit the end consumer market because they don't have the organizational infrastructure to do that. And the organizational infrastructures that are already in the Best Buys and already in the high street shops and whatever don't have the technical uh, inventions that are coming out of open source. So we partner the two together and the world is a better place. Well, it, I think I, I can only speak to here in America because I'm American, but there is a fear of open source. At the consumer street level, you know, the, the, the word on the street is, 
you know, that open source stuff, I'm going to stay away from that because I, I don't know if that's right. And I, I don't know where it came from and, and what happens if there's a problem. I ain't got no 1-800 number to sit on for two hours and talk to some Indian guy who don't know how to speak English and don't know what's going on with my computer anyway. So, you know, type in a forum, what, you know, I'm too busy. And so I think the problem is the FUD created by the um, perverted capitalistic companies that we have left in this country have made a, a place that is antagonistic towards open source at the consumer level. How's that, Mark? Is that something you can go on? You guys both make excellent points that, uh, and Miles, you, you said what I was trying to say better than I was, that um, open source, that, that openness uh, works really well for foundational infrastructure, but it's not good for making a package, not for, for, pre, for putting something in shrink wrap. You know, Ubuntu has the best shot at doing that, and they have failed time and time again. We, even with Shuttleworth's millions to throw at it, it just hasn't worked. They haven't been able to do it because the, the entire ethos, the, the basic foundation in the DNA of the people who do it um, is not, uh, is, is not, it's not there. It's not, there's no, there's no Steve Jobs there. There just isn't, um, you know, Steve Wozniak would, would be happy to make a few components at a time and make, you know, $50,000 a year for the rest of his life. He would have been happy as an engineer doing that. He, he, we needed a Steve Jobs to give us Apple. Um, and Seth, you make a great point that, you know, in the, the end user land, one of the problems is we've been fed this lie that you have to have that, that there's safety in, in uh, conformity. That, that, that if you're like everybody else, you won't have any problems. Well, that's... <laughs> That's kind of ridiculous. Uh, WannaCry and, and things like that have shown us that, uh, that if you're like everybody else, you're, you're crazy vulnerable. Um, and I, I can't count the number of people I've had say, you know, well, where's the 800 number? Who's going to support it? And my answer to that has always been, how happy are you with the support you've got now? You're not. Your support is always a guy who you call, a, a, a contractor. Uh, or somebody you hire to do it. And that doesn't change if it's open source. You just maybe change the number you dial. Yeah, but um, and, and the reason that breaks down is because if there is a problem and the CEO goes to the CIO or CTO and says, why is this working? If he says, I've got my department working on producing a patch, how come that's not here? You need to get it out. We need to have this installed yesterday. Sir, I've been on the phone with Microsoft for the past week. Okay, I understand. Just as soon as you can get it done, let me know. <laughs> yes. so, I mean, I You're wish so right. somebody tell me I'm wrong. Well, okay, let's let's talk politics now. <laughs> this is this is solved with a true free market libertarian model by having competitors competing for the quality of service to the end customer. So if you don't like the customer service you're getting from company XYZ, go to company ABC and let's see if they can do it. Let's see what what it costs, let's see who can do a better job at it. May the best company win. I yeah, wish but we had that. <laughs> when you're when you go down to that root level, when you're talking about developers of databases uh, who are working in their spare time uh, and who aren't being paid to do it, the the first amount of friction they get from another human, they shut down. They will plow through for for weeks on friction from from the the the, the application. 
from the hardware, from the, the product that they're passionate about. But the moment there's friction from a human, they, they just shut down. I don't, have to, I don't have to mess with this. this I'm yep. a volunteer. I don't need to deal with this. Oh, well, I'm not saying the open source people need to be manning the customer service desk. I'm thinking that the company which is packaging their product to the masses, they do that. But yeah. what I am but, saying is that they cannot dominate the marketplace in this kind of Stalin-esque model because that is not free market capitalism. That's just greed and dictatorial power. And it's a human flaw and we need to manage it. Yeah, but what you're saying there is, well, yes, it's true on the surface, but there's collisions of that that we see all the time, like the the uh, the, the entire Intel driver issue in Linux. Intel doesn't want to release um, enough information for the open source guys to write a driver because proprietary, because they're afraid the open source guys are going to suddenly start making hardware. That It's a ridiculous assertion. But no, it's one but, that's been going on for two decades. But their they, well, assertion is... Hold on, hold on, is, Seth. Hold okay. on. Let me finish. Okay. Um, so, uh, they don't, they don't want to make that enough information available for the, the Linux guys to write a driver. Sometimes they're willing to go out and write a driver themselves. We And, and Intel has done this. We will write a driver ourselves for Linux because we recognize we need to th- do this. But we're going to obfuscate it, and we're going to give it to you as what's called a binary blob that you're going to wrap into the kernel. Then the free, o- the, the free people say, oh, no, we can't have anything in there that's not open. We reject your w- willingness to help us because you're not willing to help us in the way that we want you to help us. And so that's the kind of conflict that we see between the open and the closed. Now, Seth. I was going to say that if they write a driver that explains all of the stuff, then they're giving away their proprietary technology to their rivals. The end users aren't going to do it, but their chief competitor, um, who is it now, AMD, they're going to reverse engineer it and be able to la- uh, lap up not all their trade secrets, but close the competitive gap and Intel will have done R&D for AMD. And I understand the problem with that, you know. At least that would be a point they would say. Um, right. I, personally, I don't believe that's true. Uh, I think that anybody who's reverse engineering wouldn't go to software to do it anyway. But beside the point uh, there, uh, I get that. And, and so what you have here is is a right-thinking company. Real, I want to help. I want, I want my hardware to work on your software. I want to give you drivers. I have employed a software des- developer to write a driver for you but I'm not going to let you look at the code. And then the, that's where the principles come in on the, the open source principles. And they say, well, if it's not open, we can't use it. And so we have this thing now where once I install a, a, a Linux uh, distro on my laptop, I now have to go to an Intel website and download a third party binary blob because the, because the Linux kernel won't put it in there. Everybody would benefit. Everybody would benefit, full stop, from this uh, merging, for putting this binary blob in the kernel. But ideology stops the benefit. And that's what happens time and time again. Richard Stallman wouldn't benefit. (laughs) Yes, he would. Because a lot of the stuff he uses runs on Linux, whether whether he's directly using it or not. The only reason Richard Stallman can get away with the life he lives is he has a support group of people who don't think like he does. I was just trying to egg yeah, on. Okay. So. You just you just got me when I was I was already going. But that's a I think I I, I hadn't I've been dancing around this in my head this whole time. This is where these ideal uh, ideologies collide. When openness and and closedness collide, 
and the 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 both people have a point but the problem is everybody in the world suffers because both people are sticking to their point microsoft doesn't suffer they sell more windows i'll tell you what though if you imagine the world before open source and you can imagine that open source never came about let's say stallman wasn't born or whatever and there was no such thing as open source we would not have advanced anywhere near as fast or as far as we had in such a period of time i would i would throw that out i don't believe that we could have leveraged technology without open source at the pace that we did. And I think at the end of the day, we have to respect it for what it's, what it's given us. And I think it's, it's an onus upon any corporation who has benefited to the trillions or the billions of dollars uh, as companies like Intel have to be able to give something back. And, and if that means that they are not willing to lose their power position in their marketplace we as consumers have to recognize that and we have to say, well, maybe ARM ain't such a bad company to go with after all. Maybe AMD's a good choice. Maybe we need to start to get a little more savvy ourselves and recognize that power for power's sake isn't actually in our best interest. Well, you've really described a Kobayashi Maru there for Intel. If we develop an open kernel, we lose our leader position. If we don't develop a Linux kernel, uh, an open kernel, we lose our leader position. How does how is that good for Intel? It's not, but really, do we care? I mean, Intel's a name on a chip that we happen to use. If it was something else with a different name, and we can still do what we need to do, do we care? Well, I mean, I following think we give them your, far more credit than they deserve, to be honest. Following on your statement that we wouldn't be where we are today without open source, we wouldn't be where we are today without Intel's early development. Maybe they're stagnant today. But we owe them a lot, historically speaking. And, of course, they've made a you know boatload of money in the process. Well, I think his point is if the consumer rejected purchasing Intel and made a concerted effort to, hey, you know, uh, AMD produces the driver for their software readily available. It's in the kernel. It's open. And so we're going to use that. Then in Intel would no longer be the market leader in that segment, forcing them to react and open up their stuff. And then the end result would be better for everyone, you know, long-term, it would be better for everyone. Short-term, it would be worse for Intel. But because they weren't the leader, they would be forced to react to the leader, in that case, AMD. But we know that's not going to happen because everybody wants the um, uh, the Intel inside. And if I could get away with it, I would bust out Weird Al's It's All About the Pentiums right now because it still <laughs> is all about the Pentiums baby. Well, I mean, what you just said there, Seth, is we have to trust the masses to make the right choices. I know, and it'll never you know, happen. We've, we've known since roughly 100 AD that you give the masses bread and circuses and you get what you want. Intel is really good at bread and circuses. Um, open source is not. Yep. Well, you know, um, okay, well, let, let, let's call it for what it is. Um, Intel's dominance in the market would not have happened if it wasn't for collusion with Microsoft and creating a, a cartel position around the OEM manufacturers in the 90s that gave them dominance. If, that was, if they were not allowed to do that um, by whatever legal means they were, 
they probably wouldn't be the billions and billions of dollar corporation they are today. And maybe we wouldn't even have this conversation because somebody else would have popped up to take away part of their, their market. Um, they didn't get here by creating better chips. I mean, they got good chips, but they didn't, cre- they didn't get to where they were by creating better chips. There were risk chips out there at the time and IBM had stuff and PowerPC were out there and all these, and these guys didn't get even into the room to demonstrate their product because Microsoft and Intel would not let OEM manufacturers buy anything but their their combination. And I don't know, that's a conspiracy that I think is well documented and it, it demonstrates that an abuse of the free market by those that aren't necessarily on the open source side of the fence but on the capitalism side of the fence is as bad and needs to be called out. Mm. Uh, and right. unfortunately, they weren't. No, I totally agree. You know, and again, it comes back to the end user not caring. If the end user cared, it, the you know, it would, it would be, you know, unicorns and fairy dust for everyone. That's the second time <laughs> I've used that phrase today. Um so, but the end user doesn't care. The end user wants this thing to be 10 cents cheaper than it was last week. And they'll want it to be 10 cents cheaper next week. Well, that's not going to happen if I can't maximize my production in economies of scale. You know, if, if I, you know, it costs X amount and that goes down the more stuff you make. But if you're not making enough because you have these 10 different companies making it, that means you have 10 different CEOs with 10 different CEO packages draining money from the research and investment and the uh, production lines and the engineers that make it all go. So you need to whittle that down to just enough to avoid antitrust and then still dominate the field. And so that way there's only two or three CEO packages and only one of those is of anything. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't care because, you know, back then it was the dancing baby. Everybody remember the dancing baby video? One of the great things, Um, you know, Z thing before there was YouTube, you had to get online and see stuff like that. You didn't care about the stuff that went behind it. You just wanted that shiny computer that you could cuss at because it didn't do things the way you wanted it to do. But you were happy because you had a computer with uh, two more MHZs, whatever that was was than your neighbor bought yesterday so <laughs> well let's 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 take it out of the hands of the masses a little bit and let's personalize this let's take some ownership as long as the three of us start every purchase search with sort by price low to high we're part of the problem yeah and, and I, I know i do i have mm-hmm. i i always that's my default thing if it when you go to a website you know say amazon or ebay or any of those the first thing they give you is either featured or um, most uh, relevant, right? I always change that. First thing I do, price low to high. As long as we, the masses, we, the individuals, as long as price is our primary uh, uh, concern, all of these other things are academic. Openness is academic. Capitalism is academic. Corruption is academic. We are getting what we deserve as we continually drive price down and quality down in search of price. Um, and you know, the, the little guy is, is being squeezed out because I'm not willing to pay two ninety seven. I literally just yesterday bought something that was two ninety six over something that was two ninety seven just because it was a penny cheaper. <laughs> I'm, I'm wow. the problem here. Yeah. Wow. This is a, 
This is a big issue um, because history is repeating as it as it does. I mean, any time that we succumb to not necessarily doing our proper due diligence and research and whatever, we get what we've got. And I, you know, uh, what was running through my mind as you were talking about that whole thing was, what does the future look like? We can. It's easy for us to look back ten or twenty years about how we got here how open source differs from proprietary and, and how the capitalism and all that sort of thing works. What I'm curious about is where it goes from here because if you look at all the dominant products coming up on the radar, you're seeing companies like Facebook, YouTube, Tesla, Netflix. Um, these are high market cap co corporations that are coming into the space. And what I'm worried is that none of them are doing anything in terms of giving back their technology to the open source market. I mean, imagine three, four years from now after the Tesla Model 3 has come out and all of a sudden they've already sold, what, 500,000 pre-orders on that thing? That company has a higher market cap than Ford. So if, if you look out there on the street and you see three out of five cars are Teslas, what happens if you want to take it to a service center or get it modified or, or change this or open source that or whatever? This company was built on using and leveraging open source to get it to where it is, but they're not going to be any different to Intel. They're not going to give up what they've got. They're not going to let you see what goes on inside of it because, I don't know, someone might hack their car. No, it's not. It's because they don't want to give it up. And so we're going to repeat this process ongoing all the time and, and unfortunately, I think three or four or five years from now, the people who will be the most evil, you know, corporate barons out there are probably people we today call heroes, like Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, those sort of people who went out and they, you know, took a risk and they forged their way through. And, you know, no, at the end of the day, five years from now, they're all going to be Hitler. Yeah, I went there. Yeah. Yeah, and who, you know who had uh, one twenty-two in the pool? You win one hour twenty-two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, and the problem is we don't look at our mark building on what you said. We don't look at our ability, our process that sort low to high, and I'm only going to spend three hundred, three hundred one. Forget it. Um, you know, whenever I do it, that's just me being rational, saying, trying to be a good steward of my finances. I can close, I can cloak it in Christianese. I can cloak it in American paid, you know, you name the thing. Uh, I'm in a church, so I'm doing Christianese. I'm being a good steward of the finances God has given me, so I'm not wasting the extra money. But when other people out there do it, they're wrong and controlled masses. And unfortunately, that's the mindset that everybody uses to justify their decision. And before I cut out, I see we're coming up quick on my eight o'clock <laughs> cutout moment. I just, you know, I just want to say in to counter everything that miles just said, I can, I can negate his argument. All I have to ask is, you know, are you a child hating communist is and that, <laughs> that makes his argument null and void because we're talking here about you know it's not about security like the companies claim it's about freedom it's about individual choice it's about the collective doing what is best for the collective and not the individual doing what looks best for the individual but is actually best for the corporation 
So that's the that is unfortunately the um, the minefield. We didn't just stumble in. We're like halfway in, and it's dangerous <laughs> any way we go. You know, right. we're not we're right smack in the middle. Turn around and go back is bad. Go forward is bad. Left is bad. Right is bad. But we can't stay here. So. Yeah, and this leads me back to the the mantra I stumbled onto for 2017, and that's pay for what you like. Everything we, we've talked about has come back to if you want freedom, if you want um, uh, uh, libertarianism, if you want things to openness, if you all want these things to, to continue, you have to be a capitalist. You have to pay, you know, uh, and, and pay for what you like. Stop sorting by price, Mark. Mark Cockrell, stop sorting by price. You are the problem. I'm not preaching it just I'm not preaching at you people. I'm only talking to myself. This is a discussion of one. Stop doing that. Start looking at what the product is and who makes it and and invest some time and effort in it because if you're not willing to invest any effort in what you what you purchase, even if it's soap or shampoo or or the you know to- toilet paper, whatever you're doing, if you're not willing to invest any time or effort in it, there's no reason for anybody producing the product to invest any time or effort in it either. And then you end up living in a disposable world with cheap crap, and you you get what you paid for. So pay for what you like, or you get what you pay for. Let me add one thing to that too. I mean, the open source model is is quite successful because it's a I guess what we would call a decentralized network model. People work on projects from their bedrooms all over the world because of the internet and because the internet allows them all to connect together and work, they can can leverage off their uh, ingenuity as a team better than uh, having to all go to the same HQ and head office or whatever. So there's something to be really said for the decentralized model. And I think that at the end of the day in history, decentralized work like that always wins it's the reason why the spanish never conquered the the southern parts of america at least not in arizona because they could not put together a, a a an army that could defeat a networked model of of tribal uh native americans who could fight them off because they weren't all in one spot and ultimately if we're going to succeed or fail based on how the corporation um, uh, acts in as a good steward of all of this, which we know historically they won't, when they eventually do fail, what will be left will be the decentralized model of the open source. And in some ways, I think that is more closely paralleled to a true free, free market libertarian model than it is to a, a central governance model in other forms. So that that's kind of where I, I mean, there's a lot of big words here. I'm, not, I'm just saying that open source is one because it's decentralized development. Everybody gets to play. They might, not all, no, they might not all agree with each other. They might yell and scream at each other. But the fact that they can work decentralized means they can't be killed off, whereas the corporation's central and we can, it can lose. We've seen this happen. And when it does, it takes down all your investment in their product. So... I like open source. I, I do. But I don't believe that it's able to put together a product to go mass market. And I want to kind of, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. You, you waited through it nicely. Okay. 
one thing I want to add, and uh, Miles's friend who talked about, you know, solar batteries and all that kind of stuff, you know, we look at the end user, oh, look, I bought this, it's green, therefore I helped save the world. Well, okay, maybe the last mile is green, but does what happened in the first nine to get to you, does that does the extra cost associated there make up for what you did? You know, you want to do what's best for yourself and your core little group. And one thing the internet has taught us is that our core little group is much bigger. You know, individual decisions can affect, you know, planetary, um, commerce networks. So just because you're saving a penny by, you know, or you're saving money by buying this product, what went into making that product? You know, was nobody was exploited in America because we have tough labor laws, but what about other countries? You know, so looking at it that way, you just, we need to be more rational more intelligent, more thoughtful, more discerning consumers in whatever field, whether, you know, we are consuming food at the grocery store or cars that we're buying or computers or the websites we visit or whatever, we should be more discerning. And that would go a long way to, you know, Hey, that might be cheaper, but you know, they, they kill their they kill that person's parents if they don't meet their production quota. Well, I don't want to buy from there. So, um, you know, dang it, Seth, you had to go back to personal responsibility. I mean, I don't want to care about the citizens of Panama. I just want to eat my dull bananas. Google it. Um, I don't want to care about human rights in China. I just want my cheap phones. Why, why am I responsible for what, what big companies do to other people? Because I'm funding the big companies. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're funding. I mean, you know, yeah, you can look at it. Hey, well, because they now have jobs, their wages are going to come up over time, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, Hey, if we said we're not buying any more, unless you change that, the people on top don't want to go back to nothing. So they're going to change. But again, doesn't matter because I know if I switch to Verizon, I get a free shiny iPhone every two years. So information is power. No, information is ammunition. You can still shoot yourself in the foot. (laughs) (laughs) Responsibility is power. Yeah. All right, David, was that a good enough discussion for you? I I think so. Um, Good. Thank you for sending that in and listeners uh like you should should do that sort of stuff because honestly we're tired of coming up with topics 297 episodes in we were done at like 87 we've just been winging it ever since uh so we need you to to give us things to talk about thank you david for doing that the rest of you can do that by going to element op element op.com element as in the period table of elements op as in op taylor um and uh, click the contact us button at the top of the page, uh, fill out the form there, as did David, and let us know what you think. Or you can send an email to, as Seth alluded to earlier, geekrant at elementop.com, and uh, that will go to all of us. Or you can, if you want your voice to be right alongside ours, you can dial 559-I-AM-OPIE and um, listen to uh, and record that uh, your message, and we'll listen to it and play it over the air. Seth, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. So on... August the 5th, 1858, the first successful transatlantic telegraph cable was sent. 
After four failed attempts, American merchant Cyrus Westfield succeeds in completing the first successful transatlantic telegraph cable. Completed approximately two months after construction began, the cable is only operational for just over a month. However, this cable provided the or proved the feasibility of transatlantic communications, and Cyrus Westfield raised new funds to complete the first permanent telegraph line in 1866, eight years later. And that happened this week in history, Mark. And now, back to you. I think you've done this one before. Or no, we've talked about something similar. Yeah, we, we've talked about like the round the world and the first continental mm-hmm. one, but I looked and this one didn't show up in my This Week in History. I, I, have, I have a search, so blame the Googles if it failed. It's, it's amazing to think that the, what is that, roughly 4,000 miles uh, between coasts, somebody check that for me, that there's actually wires. Continents are wired up. <laughs> that's a kind of amazing to me you know I, I can't run a wire between uh my my bedroom and my basement because i run into obstacles but these people wired up continents in 18 1858 not 1958 1858 somebody actually took two pieces of copper and stretched them from one continent to another that's dreaming big yeah cool stuff very cool Oh, and I think this came up in our um, in our history of communications episode that we did. So quite possible. I read an article just this week. Uh, I was looking at vacation spots, um, and I was looking at the Outer Banks of North Carolina because it's relatively close to us. And an article came up about these three islands um, outside of in the Outer Banks outside of uh, North Carolina, where the power line that feeds these three I- islands got cut in a construction accident. And in height of tourist season, this this these islands that only exist for tour, tourism, otherwise they wouldn't be there, have no power. And, and, and uh, uh, one of the residents said, "It's like a hurricane without the storm. <laughs> Nobody's here. There's no power. The you know our food's all going bad. That sort of stuff." But you know when you think about that, uh, a cable laid across the ocean floor seems pretty safe, right? But even that could get caught. Um, I wonder how many. Um, transatlantic cables have been damaged and had to be replaced. I'm sure that's happened. It yeah. has to have. I think that's the theme of Sharknado 7. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's tonight, Sharknado 5? Or is it next Sunday? Oh, oh gosh, my gosh, I, I can't believe we've gone this long without us <laughs> talking about Sharknado 5. I have... Four let me down, but again, three is maybe the greatest cheese movie ever made. So Sharknado 5, if it hasn't struck yet, is about to strike soon. We should all get ready, and we should all be so lucky. <laughs> well, they've been doing lots of Sharknado this weekend, so maybe it, maybe it is this weekend, and they're doing the run-up to it. Let's see, Sharknado 5 um, on TV today at 10 p.m. Woohoo! So, yeah, there it is. Um I read an article. It was I didn't read the article. I read the headline. It was one of those clickbait things on YouTube, and it was like, uh, "Scientist says Sharknado could quote totally happen." <laughs> <laughs> there oh, was a movie, man. so he's not wrong. <laughs> 
Oh, all right. Uh, so now, Seth, what do you have to lower my productivity? That's making you seem like a better hiring option. Okay. Well, you had such uh, you had so much fun with fill the oceans. This is. Um, I'm still going 86 <laughs> days in. I'm still trying to fill that dang ocean. This is tube clicker. This is this will teach you all about how to be a successful YouTuber and become famous and make lots of money. The bad thing about this one is it if you close out that tab, it comes back and uh you have to start over so it doesn't it doesn't remember what you were doing but you know you basically have this mock youtube set up and you've got to click to generate views and income so that you can get this auto clicking function and then you can have enough money to buy ads which funnels more traffic to your site so you can upload new videos and it's just a time killer um nothing special about it but anyway it's my show closing semi-spectacular this week click, okay click 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 all about the clicks. Oh, yeah. Yep. The the end game of this fill the oceans thing is just crazy. Um, I just can't I can't get that last few percent. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's uh it's become a thorn in my side, as Paul would say. <laughs> so uh, this was a bit a wide ranging discussion about a number of things, uh, but the the in the end it came down to two uh, of my favorite things. You know. Take personal responsibility and pay for what you like. So there you go. That's the answer to your question, David. Take personal responsibility and pay for what you like. Thanks for hanging out with us, uh, and uh, we'll see you next week, Seth Miles. As always, I, I literally couldn't do this show without you. I could, but it would be a different show. It'd be called the uh, uh, Sound and Fury Show that I, <laughs> I did a couple of episodes of. Um, and it would just be me ranting. And if you want some of those, there's about three episodes of that. And then I got tired of it, frankly. Uh, so thank you anyway for doing that um listener out there i'm just gonna flat, flat out beg for money <laughs> go to patreon.com slash element op give me money so that i can pay these guys for the great work that they do um we just closed july it's early august i just closed july uh of course i don't have my amazon fund uh referral things in for july but i got a payment in july at the end of july for i think may uh my total grand proceeds uh from patreon and from amazon and from donations and everything was 86 87 dollars this month i'm not getting rich off of this people and uh, i'd really love to be able to throw these guys some money and i can't do that unless you throw me some money elementopi.com slash patreon um make that happen please pseudo go and do it um that's it thanks for hanging out with us everybody and we'll see you next week because that's it for this episode of the geek Rant. <laughs>